Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. All right, guys, welcome back to another live episode of the Creative Gore. This is a good one. This is uh, this is actually a first for us. It's the first time right before the show, 30 minutes breaking news, which breaking which is great news. that we get to cover. And it's on our topic as well. Yeah, um, that was, uh, um, I guess, premonition. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe we felt it in our blood. Uh, Absolutely. Because no. you, uh, you kind of called it last night. So, hey, there we go. Yeah, man. And just wanted to give a special shout out to today's sponsor, which is Vending Machine Media. So shout out to D Smith and what he's doing over there. But, you know, without further ado, Kamala Harris is going to be the VP candidate with Joe Biden. And your thoughts on that, Professor Israel? Um, first of all, can you hear an echo or is that just me? Uh, I, I cannot. Okay, so I'll deal with hearing my voice twice. It's cool. <laughs> um, no, so for me, um, I think Kamala Harris is the safest choice. It makes the most sense politically. Um, I think in terms of when we think about politics, um, it's a great move for a number of different reasons, right? When you think about a racist, capitalistic, sexist society that also deals with like lots of colorism, um, one of the things that we often need to think about is the fact that, you know, as much as we, not, as much as we might not want to admit it, even us in the black community um, might see someone as more palatable um, or more appropriate for a position because of all that they represent and signify. Um, no doubt about it, she's qualified on a number of different fronts. Um, and I think it's smart because she will appease to a number of different demographics and also, yes, still upset a number of different demographics, but I think she has a balance. Um, and because she's not new to the race, as in she was already in the race, everything that could have been said about her is almost like Eminem and 8 Mile, right? Everything that could be said about her in terms of the diss track has already been said. We know about her history as a prosecutor. We know the fact that she's married to a white man. We know all these things that people would try to try to say, you know, to like a schmear campaign, so to speak. So in terms of a political standpoint, um, I think it made the most sense. It made the most sense. Is it is it a revolutionary choice? 
No. Is it a radical choice? No. Um, is it a solid choice? Yes. Um, but again, this whole election, at the end of the day, we have to decide between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And that's the unfortunate reality. And I'm happy that he didn't, whatever he has left in his mind, I'm happy he didn't step outside whatever he had left in his mind and go in a different direction. Because I think particularly in this time, um, if he did not choose a black woman, my goodness, my goodness, it would speak volumes to so many different things. Um, and I think it's also important now too, because we saw this happen before. So when Hillary got the nomination, a lot of folks who were Bernie supporters did not follow Hillary. Um, if you're thinking about it now, with a lot of folks who probably were still holding out hope that he would have he would choose Elizabeth Warren as his VP, her being a little bit more liberal, um, liberal leaning, I wonder if those folks are gonna get behind and back a Kamala Harris or this choice as him, uh, as Biden putting her on the ticket. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things happen, how things go. Um, but again, unfortunately, we have these choices in front of us between Biden and Trump, which is not the most ideal. And I know a lot of folks always talk about picking between the less of, lesser of two evils. Um, to remind folks, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, um, when he was in a debate with Byron Rustin, he was talking about, you know, it's about time that we don't choose the lesser of two evils. It should be a time where we shouldn't have to vote for or choose evil at all. Um, but unfortunately, again, as we see that there's been a, a reckoning over this summer because of the pandemic, not because of the racism that's been happening, but because folks were impacted by the pandemic and they simply could not turn away from it because there's no other way to turn to, couldn't be distracted. Um, we realize that you know sometimes we're not in the space yet where we can even abolish evil. Um, so when we're thinking about this political system that we're in, people have choices to make. Um, but I hope that people understand that their choice is their choice. I hope the people who are out there saying that um, folks fought for your right to vote understand that that franchise um, is something that folks can do with whatever they want to do. That's unfortunate reality. So if somebody wanted to write someone's name in, if somebody wanted to vote for a third party, that's well within their right. I think we always get into a situation where we try to dictate people and tell them what you need to do. Um, just understand that folks have the right to vote and they should exercise that right to vote politically, thinking about what their interests are. But then again, as we've seen, it's not just about voting to get a person in office. It's what you do after they get in office. And much of that takes place before you even vote for them to get into office. So that's a long answer to say, um, politically speaking, it makes the most sense. It's the safest bet. Um, and hopefully it's a step in the right direction to the point where we see women of color, particularly black women, no matter what flaws or whatever people want to say about them, um, at the forefront of politics and maybe one day, in the name of Shirley Chisholm, become president of the United States. Absolutely. Those are all phenomenal points. And especially the point about everything that's been said about her already during the campaign and the connection to 8 Mile. So that, that reminds me of the Petty remix. Like, oh, you went to Petty. That's a private <laughs> school, right? But uh, yeah, I do think, speaking from you know an advertiser marketer's perspective, it's definitely a demographic home run. Uh, specifically for the left. And as we see with uh, Biden's uh, campaign strategy, he really is leaning on the left here and how he's going about, uh, uh, you know, trying to get the presidency. So as we know, the overall mission is to defeat 
the current president, right? So the fact that he also got not only a black woman, but a black woman who is an AKA. So in the, in, you know, the Greek, black Greek space, I think that was a very wise pick. But for me personally, I was very, and always have been impressed with her legal experience and expertise. And, you know, hopefully if they do win together, I definitely anticipate massive reform on the border of overhaul, especially in terms of how black people are sentenced and prosecuted, right? Especially in terms of programs for black people specifically and how her programs in California, essentially it kept people accountable for the actions, like doing things illegally, doing illegal things like selling drugs, but at the same time, help them re reintegrate themselves back into the community as legal citizens. So I, I do think you need that balance as opposed to just throwing the book at someone and then you're kind of left to your own devices after you know you know you go up the river river in jail. So I think that that's uh that's also necessary as well. But I think yeah. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I was just going to say in terms of campaigning, I feel like, I really feel like they should dominate rallies to be honest because they're going to be able to generate a massive amount of momentum going towards November. And, you know, it's just kind of like how you said, everything already has been said. So they really need to bring their A game. And I feel like with she's going to be able to focus on the facts. And I appreciate that approach in terms of her communication style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think if we look at their records, their track records, as, as it pertains to criminal justice reform and hoping that they overhaul it. I mean, it's it's I don't want to say it's wishful thinking, but mm -hmm. I would say their their record would indicate otherwise. You know, you think about Joe Biden and his his um, uh, association with the crime bill um, in the Clinton administration. You think about Kamala Harris and the stuff that she did as a uh, as attorney general in California and just think about her life as a prosecutor. You also think about their antagonistic relationship that they had that we saw during this campaign. Um, so again, all those things aside, I would hope that their experiences and the way that they challenged one another or challenged one another in front of the world stage when they were campaigning for this um, campaigning for this nominee, um, that they use that to actually listen to the people and move the populace in the right direction and actually start to make these reforms that we've been calling for for the longest time. Um, as it pertains to rallies, though, here's the thing that I don't want to see folks drop the ball, particularly when we talk about the Democratic Party. Um, I looked at the slate of folks who are supposed to speak during the national democratic national convention and there's a number of different folks and i think there's some folks who were left off that should have been there to capture a younger audience for example andrew yang um was left off um and he had a massive following i think he had about 42 percent of the folks were like following him and at one point in time during the campaign and he's more um progressive and pragmatic in the sense of thinking about futuristic ways and also talking about money and imagining what entrepreneurship could look like for every citizen right but they left them off um However, you have a person like Bill Clinton who's supposed to be speaking. Like, I'm tired of hearing this man speak. Additionally, if you already have Joe Biden, who was a part of that crime bill, and Bill Clinton, who was a manufacturer of it, fresh off of the things that he said at John Lewis's uh, memorial service, there's a lot of things that needs to be discussed. I'm just tired of hearing white, old white men talk, period, when it comes to, to politics. I think that time is over. And I think the, the introduction of Kamala Harris as a VP hopefully is a sign that we're moving towards a newer future. But what they need to do is Kamala either has to be the setup person that comes up OD strong and then Biden only, he only can talk for such a short amount period of time. He can't go off script. We don't have time for uncle Joe to be going off script. We don't have time. 
right? Because he got he's he already has been removed from the barbecue, the cookout several times. And Kamala was there too at some points, right? But when we're talking about what needs to be done, Joe needs to turn it down and not talk. Like as limit as much talk as possible, let Kamala handle that. So um, if they can be strategic and think about how they can partner, um, use the Obamas, um, use a number of different other folks who are coming up in the party, um, hopefully that could be something that can give us, particularly those folks who are not interested in voting, or particularly those folks who are just so jaded by the whole system, give them some type of energy to want to go cast their vote and cast it in a direction that is not Trump. Absolutely. And I feel like Kamala can definitely do that. But I agree with you in terms of Andrew Yang. I think to me, that would have been a, a better choice instead of Biden. But, you know, that's just me speaking. So imagine a Harris Yang ticket. I think that would be a lot stronger personally, especially for the younger audience, as you're alluding to, who would get excited to vote. I mean, even Yang's proposed universal basic income, I thought would have been magnificent. But I agree with you in that she's going to have to essentially be the uh, swing swinging the hammer really right because I feel like because of how exposed Biden either from his own words as you alluded to or just from the facts that are already out there I feel like unfortunately she might be used as a way to uh, apologize for him in a lot of different cases which I think might be a weakness for them later down in the line yeah that, that's a good point what needs to happen because I'm just thinking about what you just said and reflecting on that piece um, or her bat and cleanup, so to speak, or cleaning up, right? Um, Biden is nowhere, nor has he ever been, anywhere near as eloquent and smart and sharp as Obama. That's number one. However, I would say that what Biden was for Obama, Kamala needs to be for Biden. So when Obama was out there spitting fire or whatever, Remember that time when Obama, he must have had, I don't know what was going on. I think it was the day before his anniversary or was his anniversary night or something. I can't remember. And he had a terrible debate. It was terrible. He was just bad. But the next day, his hitter, Biden came through. It was just like smacking people back and forth like in this in the debate. The vice president debate, Biden got it popping. Um, so I think that's the role that Kamala really needs to play because, I mean, I know he's polling high right now. But he's doing a lot to slide down that pole. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> right. And I think uh, if we're going to be completely honest, one of the reasons he's doing so well in the poll is because who's on the other side of the fence. So I, if uh, if it was someone else in office, I don't think he would be polling that high, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. Now that we know it's going to be a Biden-Harris ticket, do you think Trump is going to keep Pence? Or do you think Trump is going to dump Pence and try to find another VP? Uh, I can see him dumping him, you know, give him the whole you're fired and, you know, <laughs> fight fire with fire and actually get a female candidate to be like, ah, now I can really divide the people once again, because that's usually his tactic. We, we already hmm. know that divide and conquer. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see. OK. OK. Absolutely. But uh, in terms of, let's say, the voting process. You, you brought up a wonderful point about getting people to vote, especially now when we see that the system is broken. So how do we get people to be excited or have any faith at all in the system that is proven to be broken? Hmm. Um, a lot of times 
folks who don't know much about policy or politics vote for what's popular or vote for personalities. Um, so if you don't know much about politics, if you don't know much about policy, you're probably going to look at who you most align with or who you most like, whether it's a person because of their race, their ethnicity, um, whether it's a person who makes you laugh, whether it's a person who you think is confident, who's well-spoken, who dresses nicely, who's easy on the eyes. You know, as human beings, we're very shallow uh, <laughs> when it comes to a lot of stuff, particularly as Americans, right? Um, you know, I think there's plenty of times where we don't really know how our own society works. So sometimes we're like, we're just going to choose that person because I like them. Um, like I always say, is the Applejacks, um, the Applejacks philosophy. We eat what we like. Like we vote for who we like. Okay, but what about the policies? What about their politics? What about the things that they're putting forth? Um, have you had any conversation with them about what their agenda looks like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so I think unfortunately we're in a place where folks are already jaded. Um, I think though, I think the caveat is. A lot of folks are really, really, really upset with how things have happened these past four years. This pandemic didn't help. It is of my belief that if this pandemic did not happen, where people were so upset about them losing jobs, et cetera, I feel like Biden probably would be polling a little lower because I think that folks are so upset. And it's not because of all the racial uprising and injustice and things that happened. I think it's because a lot of people are starting to get impacted by the pandemic. Um, so I would say that Right now, more than ever, folks need to vote for their future um, and not let trivial things get in the way of that. Understanding that sometimes you have to ask yourself, do the ends justify the means? And what are those ends? And as everyone says, we need to fire Trump. Fire Trump, fire Trump, fire Trump. And again, doesn't mean that Biden's going to do much better, but I don't think he could do worse. Um, so that's that's the piece that we're thinking about and talking about. So I would hope that people are excited in one way, shape or form. But again, we've seen all the tricks. We've seen all the things that happen. There's so much time and it seems like a short amount of time. But there's a lot of things that can happen between now and Election Day in November. So we'll see. So I don't know what's really going to encourage the people. But I think this move, having Harris on the ticket, is a step in the right direction. I definitely think so as well. And it does give me a little bit of hope, but you know, the hope was already at a, let's say at a low level to begin with. So I guess it depends, as you said, the policies that they're going to come out with, how they are able to articulate them and how people respond to the policies and whatnot. So it'll be very interesting to see going forward, but I think it's uh it's going to be interesting because essentially you have, you know, two prominent politicians against someone who also isn't a politician. So I think that could, uh, it, it, I feel like it might be a bit of a disadvantage as it was last time, because he's not gonna be doing things that are politically correct, as we know. And in fact, that was one of the reasons as to why he won, unfortunately. So I, to me, it just, it all depends on their campaign structure. And as long as they bring their A game every single time, I think they'll be all right. Yeah, and I, I think so, too. And I think that the fact that, um, for example, we saw Kamala come at, at Joe, mm -hmm. like let him up on stage, let him up. And I think that no matter who is the vice president um, for the Republican Party, she'll light them up, too. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. Um, and if Joe 
<laughs> gets his act together, <laughs> he could probably dig deep and find some of that, hit him up fire from back in the day. Um, but you know, I think I think it's a solid ticket. I can't say I'm excited about it, <laughs> you know, um, because that's that's just the nature of politics. Um, there's always something that you have to, you know, give up in order to gain something, hopefully moving forward. Um, but I, I think it's a strong ticket. I really do think it's a strong ticket, particularly because look at the competition. I mean, if you want to talk about, if folks really want to talk about at the end of the day is about policies, politics, folks who can get the job done. What they bring to the table is a wealth of experiences that are palatable to a number of different people. And it's really reflective of the American populace in a number of different ways. Not perfect by any means. However, they are more reflective of the American populace than a Donald Trump and a Mike Pence or a Donald Trump and whomever else he wants to find an ad or replace Pence with. Definitely so. And I guess that leads us to your amazing follow-up question, which is, do our votes actually count? And actually, the clip that you sent was actually too long to play video-wise, but we can play it audio-wise if you prefer. That sounds good, yeah. All right. And here we go. You can hear that, right? And this is from a TED Talk, so shout out to TED Talk. Most people have heard of the Electoral College during presidential election years. But what exactly is the Electoral College? Simply said, it is a group of people appointed by each state who formally elect the president and vice president of the United States. To understand how this process began and how it continues today, we can look at the Constitution of the United States. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution. It specifies how many electors each state is entitled to have. Since 1964, there have been 538 electors in each presidential election. How do they decide on the number 538? Well, the number of electors is equal to the total voting membership of the United States Congress. 435 representatives, plus 100 senators, and three electors from the District of Columbia. Essentially, the Democratic candidate and Republican candidate are each trying to add up the electors in every state so that they surpass 270 electoral votes, or just over half of 538 votes, and win the presidency. So how do states even get electoral votes? Each state receives a particular number of electors based on population size. The census is conducted every 10 years, so every time the census happens, states might gain or lose a few electoral votes. Let's say you're a voter in California, a state with 55 electoral votes. If your candidate wins in California, they get all 55 of the state's electoral votes. If your candidate loses, they get none. This is why many presidential candidates want to win states like Texas, Florida, and New York. If you currently add up the electoral votes of those three states, you would have 96 electoral votes. Even if a candidate won North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and West Virginia, they would only gain 31 electoral votes total from those eight states. Here's where it can get a little tricky. On a rare occasion, like in the year 2000, someone can win the popular vote, but fail to gain 270 electoral votes. This means that the winner may have won and collected their electoral votes by small margins, winning just enough states with just enough electoral votes, but the losing candidate may have captured large voter margins in the remaining states. 
If this is the case, the very large margins secured by the losing candidate in the other states would add up to over 50% of the ballots cast nationally. Therefore, the losing candidate may have gained more than 50% of the ballots cast by voters, but failed to gain 270 of the electoral votes. Some critics of the Electoral College argue the system gives an unfair advantage to states with large numbers of electoral votes. Think of it this way. It is possible for a candidate to not get a single person's vote, not one vote, in 39 states or the District of Columbia, yet be elected president by winning the popular vote in just 11 of these 12 states. California, New York, Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, New Jersey, North Carolina, Georgia, or Virginia. This is why both parties pay attention to these states. However, others argue that the Electoral College protects small states, such as Rhode Island, Vermont, and New Hampshire, and even geographically large states with small populations, like Alaska, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. That's because a candidate can't completely ignore small states, because in a close election, every electoral vote counts. There are certain states that have a long history of voting for a particular party. These are known as safe states. For the past four election cycles, in 1996, 2000, 2004, and 2008, Democrats could count on states like Oregon, Maryland, Michigan, and Massachusetts, whereas the Republicans could count on states like Mississippi, Alabama, Kansas, and Idaho. States that are teetering between parties are called swing states. In the past four election cycles, Ohio and Florida have been swing states, twice providing electoral votes for a Democratic candidate and twice providing electoral votes for a Republican candidate. Think about it. Do you live in a safe state? If so, is it a Democratic or Republican safe state? Do you live in a swing state? Are your neighboring states swing or safe? Is the population in your state increasing or decreasing? And do not forget, when you're watching the electoral returns on election night every four years, and the big map of the United States is on the screen, know that the magic number is 270 and start adding. And there we go. So the electoral college, which is uh, what prevented Al Gore from becoming president. Oh, just FYI. Oh, you are muted. There Thank we go. You, sir. Yes, he did um, win the popular vote. But of course, we saw that the Electoral College and those votes, electoral votes went to to Bush and all those things. Right. Um, but let's let's unpack a few things in there, too. Um, they talk about the census and the importance of the census, how it's collected every 10 years. Um, this year was a census year. Uh, what happened, though, the Trump administration um, ended the collection of the census data a month early. Um, so four weeks early, it was ended. So therefore, a lot of folks, particularly civil rights groups, um, because of what the census does, as it accounts for who lives where and the demographics of the population within any every district, um, there's a fear that they're going to be underrepresented and, and, and underrepresented. And because um, electoral uh, votes go based off of districts, based off of how many people are in a certain space. Um, that's another way that folks get funny with the politics. Another way that folks get funny with the politics is a thing called gerrymandering. Um, and gener- gerrymandering is really just manipulating um, different districts, um, whether I think they have either cracking or backing. Cracking is to um, you know dilute a particular um, amount of 
population within a certain district and uh, backing is really trying to condense it. Um, so they really try to re redistrict certain spaces. So whenever you see certain places, certain places have a conversation about whether or not they're going to redistrict certain spaces and how they really map spaces out is political. Um, so that's why those things are important too. So there's a lot of times that the folks who just show up for the general election, I'm not saying they're late, but I'm just saying there are some other things that were important um, that we should have kept our eyes on in order for us to actually make that impact before the general election even comes. It's true. And I think it goes down to one of the things that Dino's, you know, saying another form of voter suppression. But it's also the aspect you were talking about actually galvanizing people to be inspired to vote. And I feel like, in, at least in our lifetime, the only time that we felt that type of inspiration was for Obama. Now, I feel like it's going to be kind of hard to compare any further, you know, campaigns unless it's going to be that, you know, on that magnitude. Now, granted, Kamala, she she would be the first black woman VP and, you know, so black on its own and then woman as well. So I think that would be cool as well. But in terms of being like a, a presidential candidate, I think it's a different type of different type of energy involved in terms of getting people inspired to vote. So with all these different levels of suppression and having, you know, voting locations staggered throughout a, you know, a massive metropolitan area is kind of like how California and New York are. I feel like it's really going to come down to the, you know, the grunt work that no one wants to do the type of thing where you go door to door and try to get people involved as much as possible. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how you get those people to vote when they feel like their vote really doesn't matter in terms of mathematics. No, I hear that. And there's so many things that I think about when I think about us supposed to be, and when I say us, I mean the United States of America, um, supposed to be a, a, a superpower who's so progressive, so forward thinking, um, folks who are you know hip to the game as it comes to tech, et cetera. Reminds me of a J. Cole lyric where he's really talking about, let me vote from an app on my screen, right? When you think about all these things, you know, folks are talking about voter suppression. We have folks over here arguing, saying that mail-in ballots are going to um, really not be fair in a number of ways. First of all, there's been absentee ballots for years, right? right. Um, additionally, what's the last time people paid taxes in person like that, <laughs> right? I, I know I do my taxes online and the IRS still works everything out. Right. When we talk about DMV, DMV stuff, sometimes we have to go there and take your picture, et cetera. But if you want to renew your registration, et cetera, all these things are done digitally online, et cetera. So when we talk about something such as voting, it can be done. The question needs to be, one, why isn't it done? Because, again, folks will always find a way to corrupt something, particularly if you have the power to do so. Right. And we have other foreign entities that want to enter and troll and get on social media and make things look different. So there's a lot of ways that there could be interference. Um, so when people start to say, oh, watch out, that could be interference. No one cares about that. That's a political game. Right. Um, these folks are particularly dealing with voter suppression. Um, so I think, one, it's not the most interesting thing to think about when it comes to politics, especially national politics. Um, if you're not into the stuff, you might not be interested, particularly if you're in the state of learning helplessness to the point where it's like, I've been voting for years. And even the people who I vote for, if they win, they still haven't done anything for me. Um, I think someone, either Roland Martin or someone who was on his show, who said when folks voted for Obama, they were so happy, um, they forgot to leave the inauguration. So they were just there, right? And they just, just let his presidency happen. No one really spoke up. No one really tried to push him. Uh, there's a lot of people who did. And they got pushed back for trying to push uh, the first black president, right? 
Um, but there's a lot of times where we really don't make our voices heard prior to the election, during the election, and after the election, particularly when we think about midterm elections too. Um, so there's a lot of pieces that we have to think about when it comes to, to this. Um, simply casting the vote is not enough. It's the best, it's the best way to start, um, you know, but, it, but, it, but it's not enough. It's not enough. So I would say um, think about what is, for those folks who can vote, think about what's at stake. Think about what you are looking for. Think about what a brighter tomorrow and future looks like for you and your loved ones. And then think about who or what can really bring that to fruition. Um, and that's probably the best thing I can say, because if folks are not motivated internally, a lot of times external factors don't motivate folks. Yeah, it's true. So it's going to have to come from, you know, your own belief in the system being able to repair itself, especially with the candidates that are presented. So hopefully, you know, Biden and Harris are able to bring that into fruition. And as I agree with you completely, I'm sure at the bare minimum, it's not going to be worse than Trump. So at least, again, we're going to bring it back to mathematics. I feel like at that level, you're going to be able to at least get a little bit higher in terms of productivity, in terms of things that are better for everyone. Because I would say it would help a lot of small businesses as well. And as we know, small businesses really do stimulate the economy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, it's also important to remind folks that you're not voting for the savior, mm -hmm. right? You casting the vote is not going to lead to salvation. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, it's going to take more than a Biden and Harris ticket uh, to change things. You have to think about Congress. You have to think about what the House of Representatives look like. You have to think about what the Senate's look like, what the Senate looks like. Um, you have to think about all these things. You have to think about who is going to be in that seat, who can actually appoint the next uh, Supreme Court justices. Think about those things, right? So this is a very important election. Uh, for folks who've never voted before and have the opportunity to vote, now's probably the time to start um, to use that franchise. Um, and again, I can't tell people which way to vote. Um, that's not that's not my style. Um, however, what I would say for me is there comes a time where you need to call a spade a spade, understand what the situation is, know it's not the best situation. But again, what, what, I, what I often talk about is you might not be into politics, but we need to develop as a people a political maturity um, that allows us to understand that politics doesn't necessarily mean that it's a representation or reflection of our morals in the sense that I can find a lot of flaws in these candidates. And if I was just voting based off of flaws, I'm not casting a vote to anybody because there's always something. Um, you can always bring something up. But what can get you closest to your moral grounding and your moral center? That's how I would frame it. What can get you closest to that, realizing that you're not casting a vote for salvation? Absolutely. And I mean, that's well said, because at the end of the day, we're all human. So everyone has flaws. That's number one. I feel like that's part of the issue with the whole campaigning process is to be like, who who's going to appear more perfect than others? And Trump literally used that to win the election. So I think you might have to go away from those traditional political strategies. Right. And. Mm -hmm. I love this too, political maturity. Yes, absolutely. So again, we're we're we all are hip to the game, as Mikhail alluded to before. We've seen all the tricks. So who's going to actually get action done is going to be to me the the more important things to worry about. Not necessarily 
oh, who, you know, who I identify with more, who's actually saying things that you can actually conceptually see is going to benefit not only yourself, but also the country long term, at least for the next four years. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Biden's perspective of uh, describing himself as a transitional candidate I thought that was also very clever as well because he understands it's going to be more than just a four-year job to be where we actually want to be. So I thought that was a that was a great way to to conceptualize what his mission and vision was for his presidency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it, that goes to the whole po- point about him being a transitional president. It's like we need to think long term. It goes back to what we talked about before with Sangu, and you mentioned the whole notion of endowment thinking. When we're thinking about the future of America, when we're thinking about who should be in that seat or who should not be in that seat in order for us to get to the next level, um, who is that person? Um, And again, realizing that this person is not perfect, but who is going to be in that space that can garner a lot of support and bring other people on board or position other people in order for them to be that person? Um, So when we think about cracking certain spaces, this alone by Kamala being on um, the ticket is important. This is important. So we're witnessing history, and I hope folks understand that. Sometimes folks might get lost in all the sauce, but this is history in the making, um, and we need that. We need to remember that. Again, you know, sometimes we always, whatever it comes to elections, folks want to act holier than that, right? They want to act like they're the purest thing since I don't know what, right? And it's like there's a lot of things that we do on a daily basis, whether it's going to a job that oppresses people, whether it's buying products from places that exploit other people for labor. We do these things. It's a part of being in a capitalistic society. So now it's not to turn your nose up. But what you should do is think about, you know what, where can I make my voice heard? Who's really going to listen to me and who's really going to allow me to live my best life um, and really take advantage of what the country says it has to offer or at least change the country to the point where it can actually reflect what it has to offer or said it has to offer for all people. Um, So those are some of the things we need to think about. I think it's easy for us to get into a conversation about, you know, I'm not voting for this person because I I don't jive with that. There's a lot of people I see on a daily basis, a lot of people on my Facebook feed. There's a lot of friends I have that I don't feel like talking to because they got some crazy stuff they talk about. Um, But at the end of the day, I understand where they are, who they are, and that's their perspective. Um, But I'm going to pick and ride out for what I think is in my best interest. Um, For example, back in the day, I voted for a third party person before because, again, my politics are my politics. And there's some politics I can't get behind because of all the oppression of things that folks have done. So, again, when you think about which politicians you vote for, which politicians actually gain your trust, right? Which politicians are the ones who you can say, you know what, they have my best interest in mind, or at least they know about my struggle, or at least I know that they're going to be able to listen to someone who says, you know what, that's wrong, and maybe they'll take a step in the right direction and do something for it. Um, I don't think it's enough for us to say, oh, well, Joe Biden was vice president during Obama in order for people to get excited about that. No, because Obama's not going to be in office. And even when he was in office, we can have conversations about that too. Um, so again, nobody's perfect, not even the black messiah of the first black president, right? Um, the real first black president, right? Um, so when we talk about all these things, again, at the end of the day, we're all human beings with flaws. It's not a vote for salvation, but what is going to put us as a society in the best possible place? That's that's what I would say should motivate people. Absolutely. And based upon how you see the landscape of America and your own words, what would you say the main three things are to focus on in terms of improving our country? 
So there's this whole thing going on right now that I'm wrestling with and everybody and their mama now is talking about being anti-racist and how to be anti-racist. Because apparently there's this thing called racism that people are just now waking up to. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know it existed. I didn't know I was racist. Let me be anti-racist. I think that's not enough. It's not good enough. Because if you really want to like unpack it, right, and really splice it out, racism was founded on and is perpetuated by anti-blackness. So what I say is I get the anti-racism. Cool. However, for me, I'm not going to teach someone how to be anti-racist. I'll tell people what racism is, but as a uh, good brother, Andre Robert Lee, he told me about one of his, uh, his mentors, um, Gloria, Gloria Cotton. People keep talking about their anti-racist. Her question was, but what are you pro? What are you pro? So you could be anti-racist, but are you pro-white privilege? Mm. You could be anti-racist, but are you pro-sexism? You could be anti-racist, but are you pro-capitalism, which is hmm, a little problematic if you talk about anti-racism, if you think about what that does in terms of exploitation of the lower people, of lower class, et cetera, marginalized folks, particularly black and brown, right? So for me, I'm pro-black. I say all this to say because my definition of pro-black means being anti-racist, means being anti-whiteness, means being anti-privilege, white privilege in that sense for folks who don't actually deserve the stuff that they get but was founded on racism, right? So I say I'm pro-black in that sense. I say all these things to say is that when people say anti-racist, I hear folks focusing on trying to make sure that there's equality. I hear that. I get it. I think we're in a space where we need equity. So we need reparations. We need repair. So there's a lot of things that I think, if we're talking about the top three things, easily, criminal justice reform, that includes and is connected to police reform. And then for me, the other place where folks are enslaved or abused or hurt is educational system. Mm. And we're seeing that right now. And if I had to throw another one on there because it's equally as important, if not more important, healthcare, healthcare reform. So those are things that we really need to look at. And those are super huge systemic issues and inequities, right? that no one has been really addressing. We've been screaming about these things. So when people say anti-racism, that's cool, I get it. And what else do we need to do? Because anti-racism doesn't solve everything, nor does it really drill down to the point that anti-racism means that you should be pro-black if mm. you're really about that equity life. Because in order for us to really achieve equality, we need to first do equity to get us to an equal playing field. Because folks can't have a 300, 400, 500 year head start and then say, okay, we're equal, folks. No, we're not, because there's so much ground that needs to be made up. So how do we get to the equity piece in order for us to ensure equality? And that's really about the reform of all those systems and things that I just lifted up. Absolutely. That's that's a wonderful list. And for me, I would have education at the top right, because as we know, Josh travels around the world. And unfortunately, the main thing Americans are known for, besides entertainment and culture, is the fact that they were probably the least educated populace in terms of a nation, right? So it's kind of as if we're known to be raised or uh, designed to be stupid, for lack of better words, right? We lack critical thinking, things like that. Now, thankfully, it doesn't apply to everyone, which is wonderful, right? However, for the majority, 
who are able to be, let's say, uh, taken down the rabbit hole quite easily, that's uh, one of the things that we definitely need to work on. And it starts with the youth, right? So again, you still have the systematic oppression that, you know, seeps into that educational process. So that's why my second point would be restitution of Mm -hmm. those who were oppressed, of course, in Mm -hmm. the form of reparations, of course, in the form of criminal justice reform, but specifically, and to, you know, big up Dr. Ashley Oliver, we need to actually have some state mandated, uh, let's say mental health healing for our community specifically for being oppressed, being murdered and being essentially second class citizens for the entirety of most generations lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then and that, no- and that point is critical. Mm-hmm. Most generations live because a lot of times folks think, oh, well, I mean, okay, we're going to do this for a year or two or three or four, and then we're done. Problem solved. No, it didn't. This, this, this type of oppression didn't happen overnight. It did not happen overnight. So we need at least 400 years of getting these things back in space, at least for these things to happen. So how do we set that ball in motion? And it's really about putting those policies and procedures in place to set that ball in motion for it to roll for about 400 years, right? So we can actually bring this stuff back up together. Now, if you want to, if you want to say 400 years takes too long, then we need some radical, drastic changes. That's going to get us there quicker. So if you're about that life, pull up. That's all I'm saying. But we can't just sit here and make it seem like it's supposed to happen overnight. That's not going to happen. This is a long and sustained effort that needs to happen. Because again, this didn't happen overnight. It was systemic and systematic. And that happened. And now we're calling it out as we've always been. But now folks are listening because the beef has fallen on their doorstep too because of this pandemic. And like, oh my God, I didn't know. So now, now that you know, what you going to do about it? Absolutely. And things like systematic oppression, I feel like over time, that term is going to experience fatigue. So I would rather call it what it is, which is normal. It's completely normal. So for those who are, you know, having cognitive dissonance or having conscious cognitive dissonance, we all understand that it's normal. And that's what that normalcy leads to that privilege and thus entitlement. Right. And we Mm -hmm. have Dino speaking fact speaking facts in the comments as well as Mrs. Yizzy. And I think my other main point would have to do with the economy. Cause as of right now, this is just the current uh running tally of our national debt here. Hmm. And this always astounds me every time that I look at it. Twenty-six trillion dollars in debt at the top left there, folks. That is dare I say, insurmountable. Do you think Sally Mae has called America? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to know, because they be calling me every day sometimes. Right. It's ridiculous. The audacity, the hypocrisy. Thousand percent. I mean, yeah, like like you alluded to, the system is completely broken. But as we see over here in the uh, on the in the top right or not the top right on the right side at the top in the middle with the u.s federal tax revenue they're in the green so as we know that that's always going to be in the green we have brother nasheed who works for the irs in the comments so shout out to nasheed linton straight from trenton with those bars in the intro absolutely but uh yes that's to me that's what i'm most concerned about but i think this is a great segue to our next topic which mikhail brought up which is the Ice Cube's contract to Black America. So when you first read this, 
Professor Israel. When did you, what did you first think? So I haven't read the whole thing in its entirety. Um, I read a number of different parts. I skipped through a few. And then I heard uh, Ice Cube do a number of different speaking engagements with The Breakfast Club, with Roland Martin Unfiltered, um, a number of different spaces. And I also heard some other pundits talk about it. Um, some of the things that are lifted up on here, albeit it's not the whole thing, it's not exhaustive. Um, but what I like about it is that it's collating and putting a lot of information together and starting a conversation. Um, one that's open to other people because again, he he didn't write this by himself. He's using his celebrity and his his status and his clout um, to push something out forward that it can grow legs into communities that often aren't really reached or engaged with as politicians should, right? So he has a number of different folks who are, are in this with him and it's almost like a grassroots effort because it's open to other people for suggestions. So if you go there, you'll see an opportunity where you can provide a comment um, and you can leave a comment you can try to get in contact and just really trying to build this thing. Uh, but here are some of the things that were mentioned. Um, black opportunity and representation, thinking about how we can do bank and lending and finance reform, judicial and public policy reform, constitutional amendments, thinking about spaces, particularly when you think about ratifying the 13th Amendment and for some other languages, spaces that's in it, right? Um, police reform, um, the entertainment industry reform and reparations, and think about monuments and institutions. So it's very... It's very um, diverse, but it's not exhaustive. There's a lot of things that are missing. Most notably, um, Reese Colbert, who was on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered, she mentioned that there's a there's there's a lot of information missing, or whatever is missing, um, for how it really addresses the needs of Black women in particular. So it's really some gender pieces of gender equity missing there, um, which is something that needs to be added. Um, so that's a huge um, again thing that's missing or a mission. Um, and I think that's these are the type of conversations we need to have. And these are the type of conversations we need to have without um, indicting one another. What we should be doing is indicting these institutions that are in place and as individuals pull our collective resources and knowledge to make sure we get it together. I think I was watching something. I think his name is Dr. I don't know if it's Dr. George Frazier or Dr. Joe Frazier. I could look it up. Um, but he was really talking about, I think he was talking about this at the State of the Black Union a few years back or something, but he was really mapping out what we as Americans in general do. And I think in Black America in particular, he said we got into this Eurocentric mindset of rugged individualism. We're so caught up in ourselves and being individuals. We want to do everything by ourselves, for ourselves, et cetera. And in some spaces, that's not a problem. But we have too many people trying to do too many things. However, if we actually shift our mindset and actually start to trust each other, work with each other, have documents like this where we can collaborate, we can have few people. I mean, we can have many people doing few things for the greater good of our of our culture, as opposed to many people, you know, not doing what they can with each other to collaborate, but saying, you know what, no, nah, I want to do my own thing. No, nah, I'm not even going, I'm not going to combine with you. I'm not going to work with you. I don't trust you. Um, if we come together, we can have fewer people, many people doing fewer things as opposed to few people doing many things. And that would be a good space for us. So I see this as that, that launching paddle, that springboard. We always talk about um, what's the black agenda, realizing that there's not a, we're not a monolith. There's a lot of diversity. However, we can have a code and we should have a code that actually talks about unity because other cultures have it. Other cultures have it. They stand by each other. So the question should be, not are we the same? The question should be, how do we ensure that even though we're not the same, 
we take a united approach to make sure that you can be you and I can be me in a healthy, safe, successful manner. How do we get there? Realizing that we're coming from different walks of life. Um, and I think that step of solidarity and unity and working with each other as opposed to working against each other is critical. Absolutely. And especially in terms of, you know, the institutions being responsible. That's why I really appreciated their affirmative action for secondary schools and colleges and how the the black enrollment must meet or exceed the percentage of the black population nationwide, which is 13.4%. So I thought that was a, that was a great addition. And it, it actually reminded me of Petty a lot because Petty was definitely a institution that prided themselves on their diversity. So I definitely appreciated that. But in turn, th this is what the main line that st stood out to me was this one right here. That's highlighted. Black Americans will be compensated for the value of work. Talk about the equity again, right? Contributed by their ancestors, while Native Americans will get back to the true value, get back the true value or land promised to them in various treaties. So the fact that they were able to not only think about themselves, but also others who were oppressed, I thought was phenomenal. Because mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. goes back to exactly what you're saying. So not just thinking about you, you specifically think about everyone and what would add to the greater good for the betterment of America. So I, I was very inspired when I read this and I did take it the way that you took it as well. I think it was a great uh, step forward to having those discussions because I, you know, I feel like by reading this, the, let's say the, uh, the right or the opposition would have uh, objection to literally every single sentence. And you know, really wouldn't have time for that. But overall, I thought it was a, a wonderful representation of thinking forward and thinking how you can actually have actionable steps to actually getting equality, not just making it, you know, an industry and be like, oh, we want equality X, Y and Z. We're going to set aside a certain amount of money. OK, but how is that money going to be allocated for things like this? So if it doesn't bring about things like this, then we're actually going to get the equality. Exactly, exactly. And what I appreciate about it, too, to your points that you just raised, two things. One, um, it's not a, a document that says cut a check for reparations. It actually talks about all the systemic um, issues and equities, et cetera, albeit some are missing and need to be added. Um, it talks about these things. It says we need to actually reform all these pieces in order for us to really have that conversation about reparations. The other piece that's important, too, is the equity piece. So, for example, there's plenty of examples in here when they talk about military and they talk about the folks who are enlisted and the percentage of black people who are enlisted in the military is higher than the percentage of what they make up in the nation. Right. So I think about 17 percent might be enlisted or something like that, um, if I remember correctly. So, again, that goes back to the equity piece, because if 50 percent, let's just say just for argument's sake, here, here are the numbers. Let's just say 50 percent of the population is white. I'm just using numbers and 13 percent of the population is black, right? If 100 soldiers are white and 100 soldiers are black, that's equality, but that's not equity. So again, it really drives home that point about equity and what we need to really talk about as it pertains to equity, as opposed to equality, because we keep throwing that around. That's why I'm like this whole anti-racism thing. Okay. If we take away the racism, all right, we're equal, but where's the equity in order for us to really be equal? Because you're still 
up here and I'm down here in terms of how much of a head start you've had. And you're not willing to give up that privilege in order for us to gain some. Um, so I really appreciate this because it's more through an equity lens, in my in my opinion. Absolutely. And it actually brought up the point you were talking about here about uh, gerrymandering and to reform that. So districts cannot be designed to minimize the impact of the black vote, which is which is pivotal and is technically illegal based upon not only the 1965 Voters' Right Act, but the one after that. So it was illegal twice, yet it's still happening. So this is one of those things as we, I feel like we frequently discuss on the show about saying that, oh, we're, we're looking to change, we're, we're, we're committed to changing. Okay, but for how long? Is it as long as the new cycle or is it until it's actually completed? So things like that. But I think the most profound section and I feel like Dino would be able to help us in this section was the massive bank lending and finance reform, which I was incredibly inspired by because it talked about things like redlining, things like that. But more specifically, as I alluded to before, America gets better when small businesses thrive. And as we learned from the from Forbes, right, and the New York Times, black women are the leading entrepreneurs in America. So the fact that we have an abundance of people with that entrepreneurial spirit in our community, these are the people, and if we're gonna be completely transparent, who are incredibly responsible with finance, right? So out of all people, they should definitely be getting sizable, right? Sizable financial loans, especially commercial business loans, right? Instead of similar to the uh, COVID-19 stimulus package for small businesses who mostly went to people of Caucasian descent who were already millionaires, right? And in fact, people even like Kanye West, who's already, you know, a multimillionaire, as opposed to actually going to people who might be thousandaires, but could actually become millionaires or at the minimum, keep their business afloat during a pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to be too existential, <laughs> um, but your, your whole point just reminded me, I believe the future is female. And I believe that um, the order to right this ship that we have here in the United States, we need to dismantle patriarchy um, because I think a bunch of white men have been messing this whole thing up for a long time. And quite frankly, have messed it up for black brothers, too. Um, I know as a person who is raised by a single mother um, and who has a grandmother who's the matriarch of our family, I know that great things are birthed from women. In fact, everything's birthed from women, right? So I think that when we think about how we invest in our communities, I think that's huge when we talk about these black business owners, particularly black women, um, women of color, if we expand it even more so. And I think that we need to do whatever we can to make sure that we can lift up those voices in every every sector that we're in. Um, because when they thrive, we all thrive. Um, and I think the research will suggest that and show that. So just really keeping these things in mind when we're thinking about the future, when we're thinking about why so often folks get left out, particularly think about black women who often get left out, no matter what the what the struggle is. Um, and yet they're still the ones who are usually the ones starting the movements. Right. Um, so just keeping those things in mind, I think we need to be a little bit more straightforward about that. That's why I appreciate that. Um, not criticism, but that note that stuff that was specific to gender equity was not listed in there, at least yet. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. And 
Fair point to Claude saying that combating the divisive nature imposed upon our culture by society is the first step in identifying a collaborative and cohesive agenda for our community. Absolutely. And yeah, I think it's a, it is a overall great approach and I'm curious to see if let's say any other celebrities will use their platform to generate such a conversation. Uh, let's see if any politicians perhaps uh, on the on the ballot will uh, mm-hmm. give this any any thought or consideration at all, at all cuz i feel like if for all right hypothetically not to say that it would happen or having the the uh naivety that thinking that it will but imagine if the biden and harris ticket actually examine this not not as it's created now but a version of this and talk about it during the campaign, I think that would garner the type of, you know, energy and momentum necessary to have some excitement about voting. Are you talking about them speaking about this contract? Absolutely. No, of course. I think, I think there's on both of their parts, I think this is a moment for them to atone for some of the things and missteps, whether it's the gaffes, the constant gaffes of Biden, whether it's some of the things that Kamala Harris has said during the campaign trail or some of her stuff from her record. I think this is a time to be proactive and really atone for some of those things to say, this is what we're going to do moving forward. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to seize on it and actually do it um, and be meaningful and authentic with it. Um, but even if it's just for political sake, I mean, you know what politics is. So it would behoove them to do that before, you know, 45 over there start <laughs> trying to stamp his approval on it. I wrote, I wrote the contract of Black America. It's me. Because no, no one's done more for Black people than he's done. That. That's what he said. Clearly. That's what he said. Especially, he's, he's done more than John Lewis did. That's what he said. And I thought this was also very interesting in this uh, contract, talking about venture capital and private equity funds that take money from police unions or other public entities must invest 134 percent of their total funds in black owned businesses and i'm curious to see if uh anyone would be interested in that i thought i think that would be a very divisive topic hmm. Hmm. i think there's a lot of things in there that people are afraid of but again you have to you have to ask yourself if you are for justice if you are for reparations and you want things to change yet you don't want to change yourself i, I mean I, what do we do with you like, I just I have those questions because there's folks who are like, yes, this is wrong, but I don't want to give up my privilege. Yes, this is wrong. But if you take that away, then where does that leave me? So are we? what conversation are we having right now? So I think if you look through this, there's a lot of things that people would have an issue with. But the funny thing is, is that there's been a contract with white America forever, and it's called the United States Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and that's been the contract with white America for a long time. Um, and, you know, there's some amendments and things that came, some ratifications, et cetera. But we, we need a contract where we can say this is how we get in formation. This still Beyonce's words. Yeah, absolutely. And just to add some more tidbits from this contract, and we have a link in the description to its entirety. I thought their judicial, excuse me, their judicial, judicial and public policy reform was also very interesting speaking as the son of an attorney because right now it says recognize racism as a public health crisis 
that mandates a federal response. They and they also push to ban all privately run prisons. And I agree with that concept. I'm like, how in the world is a warden now a CEO? That that mm-hmm. literally confirms the industry of prison, right? Not to mention, I think this is a, a great one, is to declare the KKK a terrorist organization because we have no problem doing it outside of the country. But as we all know, we have terrorist organizations here in America already. And unfortunately, uh, the federal government isn't doing anything about it, nor is the FBI. Absolutely. And we, we've, we've seen this before. In fact, I've, I've read local politicians talk about how Black Lives Matter supporters and protesters are urban terrorists. What? Anyway, mm. all I know is this. The funny thing is, because again, I'm a policy analyst. My background is in policy, um, public policy, and educational policy. Policies are created by people. They don't just fall from the sky. They don't just grow out of the ground. They're created by people. So, so when people say we can't do that, yes, we can. You just don't want to. Or if people say we can't do that, yes, you can. It might be difficult. It might take some time. But if we work at it, we can do it. There's ways that we can do it. But again, it's really about that power. So if you have power, particularly political power, then you can make these policies and procedures. And one of my mentors, shout out to Norman, he he had gave me this definition of power. I don't know where he got it from, but he shared it with me. And he was like, power is the ability to define your own reality. Mm. These folks who are in power, they have been defining their own reality because they've been writing laws that benefit them and no one else. So when we think about these things, this is why people get upset about politics. Because again, a lot of folks don't have power. Yet you want me to vote for you, and you want me to vote on you, vote for you, and you're promising promising all these things for me. So we can say that you read through the whole contract with Black America, and you're going to say that you know what I agree with it, and we're gonna we're gonna make that happen. But do we have the power to ensure that it happens? That's the follow up question. So we got the contract, we got the content. Now with the follow through, if they don't follow through. If they don't meet our needs, what's the proposal or the plan for after that happens? What are we going to do? Because if we don't have the power to make sure that it happens, what's our next move? What's the play after that? Yeah, it's definitely about accountability. And again, I feel like one of the things you alluded to before were the tricks that we, we've seen before. So it's not just in politics, but it's also in terms of, let's say, you know, finance, and things like that in terms of accountability people are not being held accountable for their actions and another aspect of this this contract that i love is that people who are in jail right now with other murderers and rapists and things like that for things like marijuana possession right automatically released right things like that this thinking forward which helps actually a lot of people not just black people right because i think it's a ridiculous notion altogether and I think this is the pivotal one that ties in both of our topics perfectly is once a prisoner completes a sentence, their voting rights are restored. I think that that's going to be pivotal. I think all that stuff that you said is very important, particularly when it talks about um, actually releasing folks, particularly those who are, you know, non-criminal drug offenses such as marijuana. Um, can you imagine? Mm. Prohibition was what, 1920, something around that time, prohibition? Mm-hmm. Um if there, you know, if there's folks who are still alive from that time during prohibition, let's just say they got locked up because they were caught drinking alcohol during prohibition, or they were running one of those speakeasies, and they were still in jail today while alcohol is a booming business. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? 
Are you kidding me? So again, it is beyond egregious that folks, particularly white folks, who are already affluent and of privilege are making money hand over fist in the cannabis industry. And the folks who got locked up back in the day at higher rates than other people who were using just as much as other people are still in jail. It is ridiculous. I don't understand how people can sleep at night. It's crazy to me. Yeah. And uh, just to add on to that, it kind of reminds me of this clause here about mandatory malpractice insurance to be carried by police officers similar to lawyers and doctors, which will obviously go to their victims, which, as we see and unfortunately have experienced vicariously via via video footage, is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All that makes sense. All that makes sense. There's so many pieces in there. And, you know, it's it's hard not to be overwhelmed and just downright upset and frustrated and angry when you read through all those things. Because we've been telling people that the cards are stacked against us for a number of different reasons and a number of different ways. And they're like, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then when we build boots, design straps and try to pull ourselves up. They're like, but how come you're leaving us out? You're anti this, you're anti that. What about us? Why can't we work together? Good question. Mm. So again, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Absolutely. And I love in the beginning how it prefaces the comments with you can't, you basically can't say that for what you were saying, like, okay, you can, you have the opportunity to, Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But as we see, even if you do that, it's still oppression anyway from white supremacy. Right. And and things like that. So it's just like you, you can't really say that anymore. I mean, they'll try to say it, but logically, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like I said, that's why that's why I think it's so it's so important, at least in my work, in my space and what I've come through this summer. For a number of different reasons, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about why I arrived where I arrived. Because folks might just say, oh, you know, he wants to be pro-black because this, that, and third, blah, blah. No, 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 no. I've done research. I've actually vetted things. I've thought about my positioning. And what I've arrived at is my philosophy is unapologetically pro-black. The question becomes, if you have an issue with that language, or if you have an issue with that stance, why? What's wrong with you? Because I didn't say anything against you. So again, it's all about love and it's all about trying to build up as opposed to dismantle. Because sometimes, sometimes if we quote the ancestor Frederick Douglass, it's better to train up young people, right, than to repair broken men. And sometimes some systems I got to let alone because I can try to work and do all that stuff. However, what I want to do is make sure that I'm looking out for mine. Because I think about me as an educator, I can preach till I'm blue in the face trying to change the hearts and minds of folks who don't get it, don't want to get it, don't benefit from getting it. Or I can actually talk to my people and say, hey, this is the game. This is the roadmap. This is the blueprint. Let's get it. So I choose to be pro as opposed to anti, realizing that me being pro is also anti. So- Absolutely. And to paraphrase Mikhail's brilliant points, Brother Malk has articulated perfectly. 
Dr. Mix wants all the smoke. All of it. In case there was any ambiguity. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Every day. Every day. I'm fired up. I'm charged up. Every day. Every day. Because honestly, like, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. And then the folks, they'd be the first ones to try to tell you, you crazy. <laughs> You'll show them everything. They'll be like, you sure? Did you read that right? You sure? Yeah. No, I'm sure. Yeah, it is. It is unfortunate because they say it's obvious that there's a there's an issue with systemic racism. But if it's so obvious, why is all there's always a like a, a backpedal in terms of when it comes to taking action. So it's kind of like at least I feel like in our lifetime, it's rarely been talked about. So I feel like people who are talking about it now feel like that's the action that was required to solve the issue. And respectfully, of course not, right? But it's a it's a, a stepping stone on the way to recorrecting the issue, but you still have to take action. And I feel like some people who are, let's say have a, a news cycle attention span, think that just speaking about it publicly for everyone to see, even the world is enough when we actually need that decisive action that you're alluding to. Absolutely. And some people speak, speak, speak. Yep. Seven days a week, all day. Shout out to game seven. Because my thing is this. People sometimes speak only because they want you to know that I get it. Not because they get it, but it's also a defense mechanism to let them know I'm a good person. I'm well-intentioned. I'm well-informed. I'm woke. Don't hurt me. It's almost the equivalent in, in I think it was Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, um, where uh, the the Korean grocery store was like, no, 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 like you know, like it's pretty much the equivalent of what people were doing now. Black Lives Matter, right? Black Lives Matter. Okay, so you put in Black Lives Matter up on your storefront as you're boarding the windows. Last time I checked, not a single black person works in your business. Mm. Last time I checked, the last time I saw a black person go into your business, you treated them incorrectly. You have, thought they were you thought they were stealing, etc. Had them follow around, perhaps. Talk about it. Talk about it. And I told you I've been in my bag over this summer. <laughs> I'm not playing games because I was too young for some stuff. So I went back and I watched, you know, I think it was a 1992, LA 1992, some documentary on Netflix. But again, it was talking about Rodney King. Um, and it was talking about all the things that happened leading up to Rodney King and around with Rodney King. I want folks to look up Latasha Harlins. Latasha Harlins. Go look at the case of Latasha Harlins. And for me, when it talk about people of color, and this is when, you know, things might get messy because we talk about, you know, why pro-black? What about everybody else? The way that I see it is that black folks, particularly in the United States of America, are the most marginalized and oppressed people. And then when you have women involved, black women, intersectionality piece have been left out for a number of different reasons, right? So when we think about that, if I liberate those people, then everyone else should be liberated too, realizing that all of our oppression is tied and interconnected in one way, shape, or form, whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed. So liberation is about freeing all of us. So I say all that to say, that reminded me that that, that whole notion of Latasha Harlins, it, it, shows, it shows a microcosm of what's still happening today. You have people of color fighting each other. So in this case, it was a young 15-year-old black girl. Not a woman, black girl, 15 years old, because you know the adultification of black, black kids, particularly women. Right. Um, thing I recommend is to watch the film or read the book Push Out, which really talks about the criminalization of black girls in schools. So look at that or read it. Um, so you have this black girl 
Korean store owner and a white judge. So I would, I would encourage people to go take a look at that. I don't want to give everything out. I want people to go take a look and read on that. I think that's a microcosm of some of the things we still deal with today. So when people say Black Lives Matter and other folks are like, but what about other people? What about this, that, and the third? And let's talk about people who are actually part of people of color or BIPOC, as people say, or whatever else you want to use it to couch that language in multiculturalism, whatever. There's a lot of issues and inequities that are there that we don't talk about enough and people are afraid to talk about it. So again, as for me and my house, pro-black. Absolutely. And Mrs. Yizzy with the, Yizzy with the bars here. Exactly. People love to talk. Enough talking. It's time for action. And this is coming from an, an extrovert, which we really appreciate. And it's, it's completely factual, right? Especially with Dino, right? The juice box. We need action now. And it kind of reminds me of CJ Millerati's comments about what are we actually doing? What is actually required? By the way, everyone should give him a follow because he's dropping some gems on his oh, story every single day. Listen, listen, he's not playing games. I'm here for all of it. Talk about, we about to start a smokehouse. <laughs> y'all got ribs? Y'all got beef? We starting a smokehouse out here. Hey, Shannon Sharp will certainly be there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I just briefly, you know, read about the Tasha Harlins and the, uh, let's say, the ramifications of what happened. So what was actually sentenced, but what was actually carried out. So I thought that was peculiar. Like you said, I don't want to give away. No spoilers, but uh, egregious to say the least. Look it up. And it's a microcosm of what happens now. It's a demonstration of, again, it's a demonstration of power. It's a demonstration of how a lot of times, a lot of times, if we look at the, the history of movements in the country and in some cases across the, the globe, white women who play the victim more so than they actually are karen because they have class privilege karen and they have race privilege as it pertains to or juxtaposed to black women particularly those who are from lower socioeconomic status then it also has um a korean woman right who a lot of times folks are like, oh, well, you know, we're all in this together. And there are a lot of movements that show that we have been in, in this together in a lot of different spaces and time. I'm thinking about specifically in LA. These folks, these Koreans are getting it popping, helping us out in the struggle. There's a lot of folks that don't get it twisted. However, at the end of the day, that whole piece was about anti-Blackness and valuing a Black 15-year-old girl's life less than someone else's. And a white woman judge having the power to do that and saying that this woman who is Korean, again, talk about people of color, gets away with something. So, again, it's a microcosm of things that still happen today. Absolutely. And it kind of reminds me of the concept of how, I guess, in, in comparison to black people, other races are usually included in that part in that privilege at times. Which is interesting. So if you look at the, let's say the other minorities such as Asian and or Hispanic and, and Middle East, certainly getting a lot more respect in this country than we are. And some of them have entered later in a majority, which being the people from the Middle East. But there's a lot more uh, inclusion with, with their race, especially in terms of wealthy elite. Of course, and to that point, as we see in the census, um, 
the American government gives a lot of people opportunities to not identify as being black. Mm. So for those folks who can pass, you have white Hispanic or white non-Hispanic. You have some other folks who don't have to identify as black. They can choose a different box. You see that we saw that um, European, uh, what you call it, uh, Egyptian, right, was like with white. Um, so when you think about how they divide and conquer in that way, too, again, it's all by design. It's all political. But that's why I'm talking about the political immaturity. We need political maturity. We need to study these things, even if we're not fans of it, even if we don't want to vote. It's like that person who goes to law school because they want to understand the law, but doesn't ultimately practice. You can read and study political movements without have to being without being too political or even casting the vote. I'm not suggesting that's what you do. What I'm saying is we should be informed and at least have an informed opinion. So therefore, you can say something such as I'm pro-black and I want all the smoke and I'll tell you why, as opposed to just saying, yeah, I'm pro-black because someone told me to be. Mm-mm, it's deeper than that. So again, we just study, 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 read, 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 think, think, think for ourselves. And then also, iron sharpens iron, find some folks who can feed into you, challenge you, give you the game, and then you can do that too to someone else. And that's how we pay it forward. That's how we move as a unit. Absolutely. And that would be a wonderful example for the younger generation, right? As opposed to following the leaders in entertainment, which unfortunately is the reality now. Let's uh, follow those who are activists and, and things of like that nature. I think that would be more useful and beneficial for our culture going forward and our people. I think that would be phenomenal. And mm-hmm. because we have such amazing comments and participants, thank you everyone for watching and participating as usual with your amazing wisdom and jewels. And does anyone have any questions? Cause I feel like at the end of the show, perhaps we can open it up for some questions based upon the topics presented. And perhaps we can uh, add to this amazing dialogue. Word. And as folks are formulating their questions, what I want to say, particularly about this this election, um, I don't want folks, and speaking about CJ and the conversation we had, I don't want folks to get lulled into a sense of complacency. Mm. This might feel good that Biden picked Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. but it's far from over. Um, and even if they both secure the White House, it's far from over. So don't be lulled into a sense of complacency like we've done in the past. Right. Um, And continue to keep our foot on the gas pedal and drive this thing because we we can't afford to slow down. We got to keep pushing. The time is now. It's a brand new day. No excuses. Absolutely. And that's the type of energy that is required to make change. It's not going to be comfortable. It's uh, it's definitely going to be difficult and it may not be. It not, may not feel beneficial in, in the short term, but long term it's going to have a resounding effect. And I feel like we saw that from our major civil rights leaders like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So as we see their legacy will live on forever. During that time, there was a ton of backlash and literal actual death threats against, against them, which unfortunately some of them were carried out. So it is going to take that level of uh, that level of commitment to to get things done. So I definitely think we are more than qualified to make that happen as a people. And again, strength in numbers. It's a lot easier to do things 
if we're completely united. So I think that's one of the main things that needs to happen is us getting united as a, a community and a culture nationwide. And then, you know, with people like Brother Sangu internationally, right? And I, I do think that's that's going to be part of the overall movement worldwide, but specifically in our country right now. Exactly. And I also want to drive home the point that the primaries, general elections, etc., is not the only time, nor is it the only way to vote. You can vote with your dollars, mm. where you spend them. You can vote with where you live. You can vote with the people you choose to associate with. You can vote in a number of different ways. So keep those things in mind. You know how people say vote with your feet, where you go, places you occupy, the restaurants you frequent, right? The church you go to or whatever your religious background might be. Like think about these things because that's another way that you can cast your vote and actually build and try to get that accountability and build that unity that we were talking about. Thousand percent. And that unity is what creates that power, right? I mean, after all, even though it may not be behaving like a democracy or operating like a democracy, America still is a democracy because even the founding fathers understood, which is how they got their freedom, their emancipation from the crown, right? Strength and numbers. So if you use the same concept of the founding fathers of this country and we can create our own liberation, I think that would be phenomenal. Yeah, and to that point, thank you for bringing it up because I, I try to tell people this all the time, particularly in the spaces that I work in. We can't teach and train people to be freedom fighters and then get upset and surprised when they fight for their freedom. Mm. Are you kidding me? You, you, we can't found a nation on a revolution and then get upset when those within a nation are revolting because you're doing the same thing you revolted against your people for. So it always, it always made no sense to me. I mean, it makes sense, but you know, it doesn't make sense in the sense of really, but I know why. I know why. Mm. And Brenda Dino with the question, you spoke to this a bit, but can you expand upon how Biden and Harris can get over their political failures? For example, the 1994 crime bill and mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question, mm -hmm. Dino. Yes. I th here's the thing. Um, let me trademark this because I don't even know if I should share this yet because it's still in development. <laughs> but, uh, this, this, I'll, I'll let it rock. I'll let it rock. I'll let it rock because Dean asked a question. He put a battery in my back. I'm going to let it rock. I'm not going to give the whole thing. So I'm working on a number of different philosophies and I'm working on a number of different pedagogies, right? I subscribe to hip hop pedagogy, reality pedagogy, um, critical pedagogy. Um, I subscribe to Bell Hooks. I subscribe to Paulo Freire. Uh, Dr. Bettina Love, Dr. Chris Emden. I, I, I really subscribe to all those things. I also think about and have been thinking about even more so black liberation theology. Think about a James H. Cone. Think about a Alice Walker in terms of womanism and womanist theology. Think about a number of different things, right? And what I've been working on and putting together is something that I'm calling, and I know there's this term is out there already, but I don't think it's structured the way that I'm structuring it. What I'm dubbing this is prophetic pedagogy. And pedagogy is just a, a method or a manner in which you're teaching, the way you teach. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm formulating prophetic pedagogy, which is really based off of faith, uh, fellowship, so collaboration, 
and you know exploration about who you are in relation to your family, in relation to your universe, your world, et cetera. So it's really about identity exploration. Additionally, when we think about me being a Christian, one of the things that we talk about is salvation, right? Um, and for salvation, I'm thinking about the prophetic tradition, black liberation theology, think about being a Christian, what it means for salvation. Usually what folks say, they say, I'm getting somewhere, I promise. Usually what they folks say is like um, the ABCs of Christian acceptance, right? You have to admit, that's the A, believe, that's the B, and confess, that's the C. I say all this to say, to answer your question, good brother, these two folks need to admit what they did, believe that what we've been telling them about what they've done has done X, Y, and Z, has been abysmal for a number of different families, blah, 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 and confess that they were wrong and confess that they will seek to do better, and here's how. I think they would win so many points. And it's the moral imperative of what they should do if they would admit, believe that they're, what they're saying is true, and then confess it and say, this is what we're going to do to write that shit, right? I think that's where you start because much of this is about trust, right? This whole nation was founded on the social construct right? I mean, a social contract, right? And I need to believe that you are trying to atone, that you know that you were wrong. You got it wrong. You got it wrong. There's There will be so much power in both of them saying, you know what? We got it wrong. Or we thought we were doing what was best for the nation. In hindsight, we got it wrong. And here's why. And here's how we're going to change it. That's what they need to do. So right now is not a time to be all politic in the sense of I'm scared to say I was wrong. This is the time because folks are so ready for it. Say you were wrong and change it because you have the power to do so. So that would be my response. Absolutely. Completely fall on the sword, right? Because that's what the opponent is not anticipating. So if you do that and you take ownership for your failures, which is the best way to overcome your failures is to take ownership. Right. And don't, you know, uh, avoid it. I think that usually will create a catharsis in your audience and your constituents. Right. And that's exactly the type of things that are required to win an election. So the fact that you would be political leaders who are able to admit that they're wrong and articulate why but then articulate the ways that you're going to correct your failures, mm -hmm. that, that would be profound. And then Claude is with the question for Professor Israel. As an educator, what are the best practices you would like to give parents regarding political literacy and awareness? So... There's a couple of things. And I'm thinking about, if you think about younger children, um, I think it's really about identity development. Um, I would suggest, um, particularly, I'm, and me, I'm just thinking specifically about students of color, particularly black students. If you look up crosses, C-R-O-S-S, -S, cross, crosses model of negrescence, that's N-I-G-R-E-S, E-N-C-E, I believe, crosses model of negrescence. It really talks about racial and ethnic identity development. I think you start with identity development. 
So one, you're talking about who they are. And then after you establish who they are, you can talk about their relationship to what America is. So it's really starting about who you are, who you're connected to, where you are, and how you're connected to where you are. I would start there before I get into like the deep pieces of what's capitalism, uh, what's bipartisanship, like all that stuff can come later. I think you start with certain spaces of that identity development. And once they have a better understanding of who they are, all their cultural identifiers, or as some people would refer to it as the core eight or the big eight, but there's more identifiers now that we, we choose to talk about. So it's more than eight. Once you spend some time talking to them about who they are, then you can put themselves in context. And then you can deal with the context. Um, and part of it is really having conversations because I think kids, is, they might be young, but they're, they're super smart. And they could absorb if you give them little bits and pieces. Um, there's a lot of political cartoons out there that you can share too. Um, but I would also say, you know, look at this summer as an example. Why was there civil unrest? Why are people calling for police reform? What does reform even mean? What is a democracy? Why is it important to vote? So I think once you front load a person's identity and who they are and then put them in a context of where they are and why they're there and their relationship to that context, you can then start to really drill into them a little bit more so about what this is. It reminds me of teaching people by showing them what it is and then attributing a name to it. Don't attribute a name out and say, this is, don't put this is bipartisanship and then teach about what bipartisanship is. Teach about bipartisanship and then at the end say, this is bipartisan, this is called bipartisanship. So it's a different way of framing and getting to someone because I think a lot of folks need that context first before they understand what that content is or what it's called or what is labeled. A thousand percent. And just to add on to that, I do think we need to change the perspective that is that sometimes certain topics are a little too mature for children. Now, in terms of like political things and information and things like finance, I don't, I think there's never too, it's never too early to talk about things like that. So I, I would just try to reframe how we're educating our children because they're, like you said, they're going to be able to absorb a lot of more, a lot more information than we anticipate especially in terms if we have, have the right metaphors, or we can even use like toys as an example, right? The same way that, you know, they trained, uh, you know, chimpanzees to do pattern and color recognition. The human brain is a magnificent place. So it's, it's gonna accumulate itself to what you present in front of it. So if you present these type of notions at a very basic rudimentary level, that'll be an amazing foundation to grow upon in the future and i feel like they'll be light years ahead of their their uh classmates i agree and um also for clodez one of the things i've done with my boys group um that i've talked about before we've always assigned them a homework assignment um and what we would do sometimes is we would give them an index card right with um a term written on it and then we would tell them it is their responsibility to not only go google this and figure it out and bring back a definition but they're also responsible for talking with their guardian, their parent, whomever they have um, about it. The way that we follow through on that is we also send an email home and let parents know what to expect so they can engage that conversation and we can bridge that gap between the school and home. 
Um, and I think that also works too. And then when they come back, they bring their index card. One is teaching them responsibility. Don't lose that index card. Make sure you bring it back and make sure the homework assignment is done. And then two, you've already engaged with your adult about this. Now you're going to come to me and talk to me about your perspective, your process, and you're going to give me this deliverable. So I think that's also helpful too. A thousand percent. And we're just going to give a, a few extra moments if there's any other questions before we wrap up. But yeah, overall, I think this is a very, very uh, therapeutic episode. I appreciate this completely. Oh, no, this is dope, man. thousand percent. And looking to get Dr. Ashley Oliver, paging Dr. Ashley Oliver in the comments. Whenever you're ready to come back and grace us with your perspective and wisdom, we would love to have you. In addition to anyone else listening, watching, whatever medium that you are participating in this conversation, we appreciate you watching and listening and digesting the concepts and ideas that are near and dear to our hearts. If you have any desire to be be a guest and have your say on any of these topics we would love to have you would love to have an open discussion with you and further the the ability to make these ideas become a reality which is the ultimate goal of the creative gourd so we want to thank you once again absolutely yeah i I love for folks to hop on and you know have a conversation with us um it could be about whatever your topic is of your choosing we'd love to have that um and then also about dr oliver shout out to her Instagram, which is taken off. Um, if you haven't followed it yet, um, I think it's Dr. Dot um, Ashley Oliver, if I'm not mistaken, you can look it up. Um, and she does Monday motivations and ther- ther- therapy Thursdays. Um, so, you know, and other stuff too. Um, but definitely take a look to improve your life. Absolutely. Dr. Ashley Oliver. And I believe it's also Wellness Wednesday as well. And we actually have a post from her yesterday, which was amazing. So I'm just going to bring that up for the folks. There we go. So for Motivation Monday, every day is an opportunity you have to power the work through the hard stuff. It takes practice. It may not be easy, but remain remain consistent and your success is guaranteed. Avoiding triggers isn't healing. I'm going to read that again because that is a profound statement. Avoiding triggers isn't healing. Healing happens when you're triggered and you're able to move through the pain, the pattern, the story, and walk away to a different ending. And that reminds me completely of what you were saying, what would be possible with the candidates, that they were simply heal, not only heal themselves and the mentality, but also heal the people, specifically the group of people that they have hurt that have already been hurting and some of which were a part of that hurting process in the, the VP candidate. So I think that would be an amazing journey for them to go on. And I think it would set a resounding example for the American people. Yes. I'm calling for hashtag political atonement. Mm. That's what I'm calling for political atonement. Make it happen. Captain. Ah, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, guys, we're going to we're going to cut it there. Thank you for sticking with us. We appreciate it. And we're going to see you next week and enjoy your evening. You repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah. Hey. 
lives matter.